Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. On occasion, people will go into the scriptures, they will read the Bible and study the claims of the Lord Jesus to see whether or not he really was saying things that they should be paying attention to. They will consider his claims, they will consider the claims of other people, and they will look to see whether or not he really is a person that they should take seriously. Because many people are making the claim that the Lord Jesus is someone that you should be taking seriously, that you should consider the claims that he made, you should consider the miracles that he performed, and consider them very seriously because your eternal life in heaven or in hell would depend on your belief in what the Lord Jesus had to say. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, then you will have eternal life, believe in what he came to do, believe in what he came to give and receive, what he is offering to you, if you will consider that and if you will believe and cling to, trust in and rely on the truths that the Lord Jesus claimed, if you will do that, then you will have eternal life. And this is a very serious concern for many people. There are many people who do consider what eternity may be like. There are other people who do not care. They believe that this life that they have right here on earth is their eternal life, and so they have no interest in the things of heaven, and they have no interest in knowing if there is a God or not. But there are others. There are some people that really want to know, is there a God? Is there an eternal life? And if there is a God, is this a God that they could know right now? Is this a God that they could experience a dynamic, personal, interactive relationship with right now? And if the Lord Jesus was claiming to be God manifested in the flesh, then people will go into the scriptures and evaluate the scriptures, evaluate his claims to determine whether or not he was telling the truth. There are some significant complications, however, that many people will run across when they go into the scriptures without understanding the historical and cultural background that the writers were assuming a person would understand when the writers wrote what they did. And so it's very easy for a person to go into the scriptures, into the Bible by themselves, and not understand really what's being described, not understand what is taking place, why the Lord Jesus performed the miracles that he did perform, why he said the things that he said, and why he did the things that he did. It can be very easy to miss these things, and what's even more difficult is that there are some very distinct challenges in the scriptures that can raise some very important questions and some very important concerns that do need to be addressed. One of the most common concerns that people express when they go into the scriptures looking to evaluate the claims of the Lord Jesus One of the most common concerns is how was it that the Lord Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights? This is a very important question that many people are asking, and when they go into the scriptures and they are unable to find a satisfactory explanation for how the Lord Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights, 
they will often reject the claims of the Lord Jesus, reject him as the Messiah, reject the claims of the writers who wrote the books that we have in the New Testament, and people will effectively reject the Lord their God as a result of their confusion, as a result of their uncertainty. This is a very realistic decision, because if you consider the importance that we place on the subject of truth, then there had better be truth where we are seeking it. And when it comes to the issue of the Lord Jesus being in the grave for three days and three nights, this does raise some very serious concerns. Let me give you a simple example. The tradition of many Christian denominations, the tradition is that the Lord Jesus died on Friday, that he was crucified on Friday, and that he rose from the dead on Sunday morning. Now, if you consider this tradition, that the Lord Jesus was crucified on Friday, and then he rose from the dead on Sunday, all you need to do is count the days and nights that are in between. If he died on Friday, then we can consider that to be one day. He was in the grave on Friday before the sun went down, and so we could say that he was in the grave for that day. And then on Saturday, he was also in the grave. That's a second day. But on Sunday morning, he rose from the dead, and so we don't quite have three days there. Now, if you would like to consider that perhaps he was in the grave for a few hours on Sunday morning before he rose from the dead, then maybe you could get three days that way. I personally think that that would be stretching it a little bit, but there are people who will be satisfied by that answer. Not everyone is satisfied with that answer, but some people are satisfied with that answer. However, when you consider the nights, there is a significant problem, because if he was only in the grave Friday night and Saturday night, you're missing a third night, and that definitely is an obvious discrepancy. And so people will look at this tradition and they will say there is something very seriously wrong with this tradition. How do you get three days and three nights out of Friday to Sunday? Well, my answer is you don't. You just simply do not get three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday morning. They aren't there. They're not there. Now, there are many people very educated people, people who are considered to be highly respected in their denominations and in their seminaries and in their circles of influence who have done some very interesting timing gymnastics in order to try to reconcile this potential problem. And I understand that they have done that. I have seen many of them. I have looked at them very carefully, and I just simply do not agree with them. I personally do not agree with the conclusions that have been made available in our culture up to this point. And what I'm referring to is the conclusions that have been presented over the last 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. I have read them, I have studied them, I have looked at them, and I have found nothing that satisfies my personal concerns with regards to this subject. That does not mean that I do not believe that the Lord Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. What that means is that I needed to find an alternative explanation that I would be satisfied with. And through my own study, I have found an explanation that I personally believe is satisfactory, that is an explanation. I sincerely believe you can go into the scriptures and you can identify all three days and three nights that the Lord Jesus was in the grave. You can find this in the scriptures. However, in order to understand this explanation, there are a few things you're going to have to reconsider. The first thing that you're going to have to reconsider is the traditions that have been outlaid before. I personally believe that they are to be rejected. The second thing that you're going to have to consider is a greater understanding of the law. 
especially the law regarding Passover and the law regarding the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The laws concerning Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread have not really been expounded on very well in our culture of Christianity today, but I believe that if we do look into them and have a greater understanding of what those laws really do require, I believe that after understanding that, it's very easy to spot the three days and three nights when we go into the scriptures. But what I sincerely want you to recognize right now is that this is a very important issue. Now, it may not be an important concern to you. I can understand that. This is not a very important concern for many people. However, there are people who do consider this to be very important, who do believe that this is a very important issue when it comes to the subject of Christianity when it comes to the claims of the Lord Jesus. This is a very important subject that many people want to have resolved before they are willing to accept the claims of the Lord Jesus and believe that he is the Messiah. It is a very important subject, and so because of that, I am going to devote the next few broadcasts to explaining how we can account for all three days and three nights that the Lord Jesus was in the grave. And it will take some time because there are some very important details that we do need to consider in order to account for this. This is a challenge that the church has been faced with for several thousand years, and so it will take me a few broadcasts in order to explain how we can resolve this conflict and how we can find a direct answer to the question at hand. Now, to introduce this subject, I would like to go into the scriptures in Matthew chapter 12 and explain the context by which the Lord Jesus made the claim that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. I would like to take a brief moment just to explain the cultural context, to explain the circumstances that the Lord Jesus was placed in, such that he decided to respond to these circumstances in the way that he did by making the claim that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. I really believe that this is very important to establish the proper context of this subject, and so we can have a greater understanding of the importance of what he's really communicating and how that affected the entirety of his ministry while he was performing his ministry here on earth. I sincerely believe it's very important to examine the context of when he made this claim and why he made this claim. The context is found in Matthew chapter 12. Now in Matthew chapter 12, we have the description of the Lord Jesus walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. This was a significant event, especially as the Pharisees were evaluating the Lord Jesus and evaluating his claims to see whether or not he really was the Messiah. This is a significant event, and I explained this circumstance in the series that I did on the Sabbath law, and so I won't do that right now. I'm just going to move forward from here and say that this is the point of reference I will begin at, and that is that the Lord Jesus was having a conflict with the Pharisees with regards to the Sabbath law. This was a very important conflict, and as you continue to read in chapter 12, after he walked through the grain fields, he then healed someone who had a withered hand on the Sabbath day. That is found in verse 9. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, where it says, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? You see, at this point, they're looking for an opportunity to accuse the Lord Jesus of not being the Messiah. 
Then in verse 11, this is Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then in verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. All right, here we have in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees saying that not only are they disturbed that the Lord Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath day, but at this point they sincerely believe that it is their obligation, that it is their responsibility to find some way to now destroy the Lord Jesus. That's the attitude that he is now facing. At this point in his ministry, he is now facing a hostile religious culture. The religious culture, the religious leadership of his day was now hostile to him and is now going to be searching for some way that they can destroy him. Not only are they opposed to him, but they sincerely believe that they need to eliminate him or, in effect, destroy him. That was what they were claiming. Now, at this point, his ministry is going to begin to change because for him to be accepted as the Messiah in Israel, it would be necessary for those who were in leadership positions, who were in the leadership positions and not only the civil government, but also the religious infrastructure. The religious society also needed to accept him as the Messiah for him to effectively establish the throne of David and to institute the messianic kingdom. But if the people are not willing to accept him as the Messiah, then he's not going to be able to establish the Messianic kingdom as they were expecting the Messiah to establish the Messianic kingdom. But that's perfectly fine because his purpose, his purpose in his ministry was not to come and do that at this point in history. His purpose was to die for the sins of the world raised from the dead to offer to us the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam. That was the actual problem that he came to resolve. That was the problem that actually existed between man and God. It was not a matter of restoring the throne of David. It was a matter of restoring our God back within his creation. That was what the Lord Jesus was here to do, and no one was going to stop him from doing that. And so this conflict had nothing to do, really, with what he was going to accomplish. Even if the people accepted him as the Messiah, he still would have accomplished the work of salvation. If they would have accepted him as the Messiah and tried to set up the Messianic kingdom, then the Romans, who were in power at that time in Israel, they would recognize the Lord Jesus as being someone who was committing sedition, and so they would crucify him. So regardless of whether the people accepted the Lord Jesus or not, he was still going to be crucified. That was what he came to accomplish in order to provide for the salvation of humanity, and no one was going to stop him from doing that. But when you continue to read in Matthew chapter 12, what happens is that they bring to him in verse 22, someone who is demon possessed, both blind and mute. This is found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, it's very easy to read through these two verses and miss what is really taking place here. This was not a small healing. This was a major healing. This was a major miracle that was occurring. 
but you wouldn't know that this was such a major miracle unless you knew what the Pharisees taught about this circumstance. If you did not know what the people believed concerning a person who was both blind and mute and was demon-possessed, if you did not know what the people believed about this situation, then it would be very easy for you to miss the miracle that is taking place and the meaning of it to the people when he performed this miracle in front of them. This was a very important miracle. In order to understand this miracle, and also this is, of course, to understand the context of why the Lord Jesus made the claim that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. It's very important to understand the cultural context of this miracle. To explain this, I'm going to start with the fact that he was demon-possessed. The fact that he was demon-possessed was not the greatest concern. You see, there were people who were possessed by demons. The people acknowledged and understood that there were demons and that there were demons who were directly interfering with people's lives that they were overcoming people to the extent where they were controlling people and disrupting their lives. The people knew that. There was no question as to whether or not there was a demon. The people did believe and recognize that there were demons that could invade the life of a person and that they could interfere with the life of that person. In this case, we have a demon who is causing this person to be both blind and mute, which means that they cannot see, they cannot hear, and they cannot speak. That's the circumstance. Now, given that this person did have a demon, the Pharisees did teach that there was a way that a person could be set free from this demon. You see, the Pharisees did believe that they could cast out demons. There was a doctrine, there was a teaching, there was a methodology by which a person could cast out a demon. This was a claim of the Pharisees that they did have this power, that they did have this authority. There was a procedure that was described how they would cast out a demon. The procedure was very simple. The first thing that they would do is they would establish communication with the demon, usually by trying to establish communication with the demon through the person who the demon was possessing. After they have established communication with the demon through their dialogue with the demon, they would determine or discover the name of the demon. Once they determined the name of the demon, then they would demand that the demon leave that person in the name of the living God. They would demand that the demon would leave that person by referring specifically to that demon by name. That was their procedure. That was what they believed in terms of how they would cast out demons. Now, did they really cast out demons in this way? I honestly do not know. We do not have enough evidence in order to confirm or deny whether or not they were legitimately casting out demons by this means, by this mechanism. It could very well be that the demons were giving the Pharisees the impression that the demons were being cast out of people, giving them that impression by just simply departing when this procedure was followed. We don't know if that was really taking place. We don't know the exact circumstances. There is not enough information available to know whether or not the demon was actually being thrown out or whether or not the demon was departing from the people in order to give the Pharisees the impression that they had more authority than they really did or to give the people the impression that the Pharisees had more authority than they really did. Now, why would the demons want the Pharisees to have that impression or the people have that impression about the Pharisees? Why would they want that to happen? 
Well, I'm not able to give an explanation to a question such as that in this broadcast because it would deviate too much from the topic, and I don't have the time to explain that because if I tried to explain that, I would deviate too far from the subject. And so I will refer you to the series that I did on spiritual warfare. And in that series, I give an explanation as to why the demons would want the Pharisaical doctrines to be perpetuated because, in effect, those doctrines were perpetuated to the advantage of Satan but a clear explanation of that is given in the series that I did on spiritual warfare. And so I will have to refer you to that series in order to get a better explanation for that question. But at this time, I just want to say that the Pharisees believed that they were casting out demons, and this was the procedure that they would follow in order to cast out the demons. The problem, however, with this circumstance is that they have a man who is blind and who is mute, which means that they cannot see and they cannot speak. The problem here is that there is no way to establish communication with the demon through the man because there's no way to communicate with him through sign language because he cannot see and there's no way to communicate with him verbally because he cannot speak and he cannot hear. And so given that, there is no way to establish communication with the demon. There's no way in order to identify the name of the demon. And so there's no way to cast the demon out of this person. This is what they believed. This is what the people believed because this is what the Pharisees were teaching. And so the way the Pharisees resolved this circumstance was that they claimed that the only one who would be able to cast a demon out of a man who was both blind and mute, the only way that that would happen is if the Messiah himself came to cast out that demon. That's what they claimed. The Pharisees taught the people that only the Messiah would be able to cast a demon out of a man who could not see and could not speak and could not hear. That's what they were teaching. And so when the Lord Jesus cast the demon out of this person, he was performing a miracle that the Pharisees claimed only the Messiah would be able to perform. That's the importance of what's being described here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and 24. Again, in Matthew chapter 12, Verse 22, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And then in verse 23, And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? They said, Could this be the son of David? Because that's what they were taught. The Pharisees were teaching them that this would be the son of David. And so when you understand that, then you can have a greater appreciation for verse 24. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. That's how they responded. They knew that they were teaching the people that only the Messiah would perform this, and so they needed to come up with some explanation that would explain how this miracle was being performed. And in their minds, it was not acceptable to claim that the Lord Jesus was the Messiah because of his violation of the Sabbath law previously. And so their way of trying to deal with this situation was to claim that he was casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And in their mind, they believed that that would be a satisfactory explanation so they would not have to recognize the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were so determined to reject the Lord Jesus as the Messiah that they were willing to ignore and reject the beliefs that they held dear in order to hold on to that belief that the Lord Jesus would not be their Messiah. That was the conviction of the religious leadership that they sincerely believed that they would have to turn away from their own beliefs 
in order to hold on to their rejection of the Lord Jesus. That's how determined they were, that they were no longer willing to consider even the signs that they claimed only the Messiah would perform. You see, there was no prophecy that was ever given in the scriptures that suggested that the Messiah would have to perform this miracle. There was no prophecy. This was a belief of the religious leadership that the Lord Jesus was responding to in order to try to reach out to them, in order to try and reach out to them and hopefully give them the evidence that they would need in order to believe in him. But even with this evidence, they were determined to reject the Lord Jesus. And so how did the Lord Jesus respond? He responded by explaining to them that there was only one more miracle that he was going to perform in order to assert his messianic claim. That at this point in his ministry, he's now going to make a major transition and no longer perform any miracles in order to assert his messianic claim, to assert that he is the Messiah. This was the pivotal moment in his ministry when he completely changed his approach of ministry. From this point forward, he no longer performed any miracle in order to assert his messianic claim. From this point forward, the only miracles that he performed were to meet the personal needs of individuals. That was a major transition, a major shift in the way that he performed his ministry. He did say that there was only one more miracle that he was going to perform in order to assert his messianic claim, and that was that as Jonah was in the whale for three days and three nights, so he would also be in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he would be resurrected from the dead, and that would be his final claim, his final sign for them. You see, they had signs that they had decided on in advance that they believed the Messiah would perform. Or more correctly, they believed that if a person was able to perform these miracles, then that person would be the Messiah according to their beliefs. According to their theology, they had decided who the Messiah would be and how they would qualify him or how they would determine if he really was the Messiah. And even though the Lord Jesus did perform those miracles... He did fulfill what the people believed the Messiah should fulfill. That didn't matter to them because there were other things that they did not like about the Lord Jesus. And obviously those other things were more important to them than their own beliefs about how they would determine who the Messiah would be. And so this was the context that the Lord Jesus found himself in and why he made the claim that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. I am out of time for this broadcast, but I will continue with this subject in the next broadcast where I will proceed to explain how we can go into the scriptures and account for all three days and all three nights that the Lord Jesus was in the grave. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937 or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you,